Hello, you're listening to Armchair Analysts with me, Rupert Meadows, and Cameron McDonald. This week, we're talking managerial changes. Liverpool will be creating committees, studying CVs, interviewing the neighbours of each manager's aunt when he was six years old and leaving no stone unturned. Barca, Laporta and his two boys meeting at a restaurant, the Sopranos style. AFCON and the Asia Cup. Loads and loads of sort of teams that we weren't expecting to do so well. I am now sort of uh, slightly rooting for Dr. Congo, just because I like saying Dr. Congo. And the latest goings-on at Manchester United. Off the pitch, this is the equivalent of signing like a Figo. Um, Despite this still being the transfer window at the time of recording, it's the uh, 30th of January, we are going to be talking a bit more about managers and executives changing roles uh, this week than the players. And actually, um, I sort of wanted to start, before we go into some of the really big news, I wanted to start off with something really tangentially related to managers. Um, On my way rushing home uh, to to get recording, uh, I was listening to the Stick to Football podcast. Um, Oh, yeah. They've had sort of Frank Lampard on as a guest this week. And in having Frank Lampard, they're sort of talking about the golden generation. And Gary Neville had a crack at designing a a setup for the golden generation that he thinks would have been successful, which I'm just going to share with you because I want to hear your authentic reaction because I was like, this is... Okay, wait, don't, 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 don't. I'm going to interrupt you there. Don't tell me anything that might jeopardise my unbiased opinion. Okay, I won't, but he... I'll say this much. He set up with a back three of Ferdinand, uh, Sol Campbell and John Terry uh, and Ashley Cole at left wing back. So far, a little bit crazy in terms of, you know, none of those players played in the back three as far as I can remember. Yeah. Uh, and I think the style of defending there was a little bit different. Sure. In order to facilitate the sort of midfield of Skulls, Gerrard and Lampard, he would have had David Beckham at right wing back. Ooh, that is a, Which... that's a spicy move. <laughs> just David Beckham could not like a, a player with loads and loads of talent could not play a right wing back. Um, but he I, I heard that. I just wanted to. Yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, he was never very quick. He would, oh, but is Trent Alexander Arnold that quick? Is is that what he's thinking? Just like he wants a player to just sit on on the the end of the pitch and just whip balls in. I think I think what's happening is, and um, um, before we even get into our own podcast, another podcast I was listening to was. Um, <laughs> You remember Nadem Onuoha? Um, used to play for sort of like QPR, City, um, and he was talking. He was on another podcast, and he was talking about, amongst other things, Joe Barton. But he sort of mentioned that a lot of the pundits that we hear from these days are talking about a game that is so different from the game that they played that it's almost a different sport. And it's like it's kind of true when you hear about sort of some of these players like Gary Neville talk about a back three. Yeah, okay, they watch it a lot and they see a lot of modern players, but like we're ostensibly hearing from them because of their expertise. A lot of these guys haven't played in the system, so you know the fact that Gary Neville thinks that David Beckham could play well in a <laughs> as a right wing back, probably why he's not a manager anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, I mean, I those think are, uh, those are my two cents. He's quite clearly attempted to just like graft that entire squad into like today's footballing world rather than do what from what it sounds like the task was to do which is to actually work out how they could have played back in like 2006 um and yeah uh, i'm not sure i'm not sure how much i i back that at all just any any other spicy e- even takes the back well even just the back threes me was kind of mental because like oh yeah no i oh, agree england was not ready by, for by a, today's for a standards three. Well, but no, nor, but like by today's standards, you think about players who play in back threes and back fours, and there's a little bit more of interchangeability there, if only because the role of a fullback has changed. So oftentimes, when you have really mobile fullbacks and fullbacks who are really contributing, it is kind of expected that one of the centre backs will drift about a bit wide. You know, there's a little bit more sort of flexibility in what the role of a centre back and what the role of a fullback means. Whereas, like, if you take three players that played pretty much their entire careers as old school centre backs, and you go in a back three, this will work. You might get. Exposed quite a lot of times yeah well i think john terry played in a back three towards the end of his chelsea career i think oh did he did he yeah I, I did wonder about that did he or was that maybe well maybe maybe it's but, it's, um... it's a big maybe um i can't see it being a particularly helpful um, formation. I'm actually now trying to think of other people that could have played at right wing back for England. 
and it's quite an interesting. I, I, <laughs> I think drop the right wing back thing altogether. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll give a shout out. I, Do you think I, Sol I, Campbell I... could have played at right wing back? No. Um, <laughs> well, look, let's let's not get bogged down in this. I was just something I briefly. We maybe could have even had this conversation off air, but I uh, I kind of just yeah, wanted to, I, to ask you about it. I think um, I think um, that's good. Well, it, if if we're talking about the last twenty minutes. Um, of our time spent, I, I just spent about twenty minutes going through Jurgen Klopp's old minds career to try and find something interesting about it for our episode. The only thing I came up with was that he used to play with a guy called Michael Schumacher. Well, there you go, um, and that is probably a good place to start with Jurgen Klopp because that has been the biggest piece of football and dare I say sports news uh, over the last sort of cycle. Jurgen Klopp making the uh, you know the seismic announcement that he is going to step down at the end of the season. Um, mm. Not one that anyone saw coming, and I think especially in this modern world where you know we hear about transfers sometimes two or three months before they've actually sort of been confirmed from various rumours and and all sorts of things. Elite, it's kind of crazy that Jurgen Klopp apparently had this conversation with the sort of the board and various team members back in November, <laughs> and this is only just coming out because he's decided to publish it. So that's the first sort of extraordinary thing about this story that sort of caught caught my eye. But secondly, obviously. A huge, huge change to the league. Uh, you know, the manager who, at least statistically over the last few years, has been the second best. Someone who, for my money, I would probably say is the best manager in the league. I know that's up for dispute, but has been doing really, really good things. And were he not up against a 115-sized uh, elephant, charge-sized elephant in the room, might have won, you know, four or five of the last seven Premier Leagues. So that's not to say that... Uh, well, I won't get too far into that. But yeah, I, I really rate Jurgen Klopp. And I think him leaving will have such a seismic effect on Liverpool, but also the entire power balance of the league in the same way that we look at departures of people like Sir Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think as I have reacted to this, I I think it's obviously quite natural to, to start small in terms of your perspective and how you think it'll affect. And... I think the first thing I've really been thinking about is whether or not, you know, it, what, what the rest of the season can look like, um, let, let alone, you know, how the, the league reacts as a whole. Um, you think it's going to be a seismic shift as impactful as Sir Alex Ferguson leaving? I, I don't think I it's going to be quite that size. I don't think it's going to be quite that size because when you think about, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson or Arsene Wenger, both of them... Firstly, we were with their clubs for quite a lot longer than Jurgen Klopp has been with Liverpool. Um, and also, I think they came at sort of more pivotal moments within the Premier League. But in terms of the modern Premier League game, I mean, you know, who's who in the modern game has been managing consistently? We, we just don't see managers do that as much anymore. And I That's think he yeah. has become... Like, I, I, I am not a Liverpool fan. And yet him leaving, it felt like a little bit... The only way I can describe it is sort of unsettling because he was sort of such a fixture at this point as someone who has been a manager for what is now an enormous amount of time in the modern game. To see him leaving was like, oh Christ, that, that is that is a big change. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think how I have thought about it, which is probably the exact same thing, just with different wording, is that it is the end of an era. Um, you know, these, these teams have battled it out at the top. Klopp and Pep Guardiola for so long, several years now. And it's been such a, such a back and forth such a narrative, such a large part of the narrative of the Premier League that, yeah, you're right, it, 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 is, it is a huge thing. And, well, before we get into all of the, the ramifications of it, I also want to just say, did, were you surprised at how this came out in terms of it being in the middle of the season? Is this something that you think is, is normal, natural? I personally was quite stunned. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, the conversation that, d depending on how you look at it, there have been some suggestions that it'll give Liverpool a bit of a boost. There have been other people suggesting that actually we've had this in the past where managers have done this and it hasn't had that effect. If anything, it sort of caused people to down tools. I mean, it's an interesting time. My sort of initial gut reaction was, if you're going to announce you're leaving, it's quite a good time to do it. Like Liverpool, the top of the league, they are still like they're probably the favourites in the uh, you know the Europa League. Certainly, they're one of the favourites in the FA Cup. They're one of the they're probably the favourites in the Carabao Cup. Obviously, with only Chelsea left to beat. If I were a Liverpool player, that would sort of give me the sort of 
you know, extra 10%. You, you know everyone's going to be dying for the shirt because this is going to be Jurgen Klopp's last game against Arsenal when they play them uh, on Sunday. It's going to be his last game against Manchester City whenever it is that they play them. It's going to be his last game against Manchester United whenever it is that they play them. All of these games, which are already hugely significant, obviously, now have an added level of significance. And you get the sense that players are really going to be laying things down on the line and there's, there's sort of nothing left to lose here. Now, the other opinion for some people is that like players can lose steam and sort of not do it if they know like in the same way that if you know your boss is leaving you maybe have a bit of senior ice at work but I kind of think that Jurgen Klopp has got to that point now where he is so influential that, that all the players will genuinely want to give him a good send-off obviously they already would have wanted to win the league but I, I think that'll give them that extra push yeah I I actually somewhat disagree I feel like you're right sometimes people will want to you know, work their harder, hardest, even harder than normal, um, to try and give them a good send off. But I think that Liverpool made enough changes this season, and they got rid of enough of their old guard that I, I feel like that's less that's less applicable here. You know, there there is no Fabinho, there is no Jordan Henderson, there is no um, Firmino. Um, there's no Mane, like all of these players that defined Liverpool throughout this this period. Obviously, Salah's still there. Obviously, Allison's there. Obviously, Van Dijk's still there. But but when I think about you know that that real core group of Klopp's players, at least two thirds of them are gone, and we have seen it as you kind of already um, alluded to earlier. We have seen it time and time again that I think I think these players will just stop playing for him because they know that they will have to win over the new manager in the new year. Obviously they'll try and play well, but I think that if you're talking about those, like those inches, that psychological edge that you have or don't have, I don't think they're going to have it. Well, I think it's, it's, it'll be fascinating to see what happens to your point about a lot of these players not being quote unquote Klopp players. I would kind of suggest that he has reached that point similar to, uh, and maybe not to the same extent, but similar to the Vengas and the Ferguson's where you know, if you want to talk really? about you really? know, Jordan Henderson being a Liverpool player, like Klopp, Klopp defines this Liverpool era so much that like Liverpool fans themselves are sort of putting him next to some of the most legendary managerial names, the the Bob Paisies, the Bill Shankleys in, in their history. So I think that's where Klopp has got to, where it could be an entirely new squad and it would still be Klopp's Liverpool because that's how much, how ingrained he's been into the club. And then obviously you go beyond that and you think about the various members of staff that he's got, a lot of whom are leaving uh, along with him. So yeah, I think even though you've got some players like Darwin Nunez who maybe haven't worked with Klopp for a million years, he's still going to have a tremendous amount of respect for a guy who is kind of a footballing institution, certainly in that city and certainly in, in this league at this point. I, I actually, uh, I, I hear you, and I, I think that there are components of that that I agree with, but I think that it is wild to suggest that Jurgen Klopp is near Arsene Wenger and Alex Ferguson in terms of longevity, I, uh, in terms like... of impact, in terms of history, in terms of profile. Nowhere near. He's nowhere near. I, I, I'm, I'm not saying he's near because obviously you've got two managers there who both had about 20 odd years. Like I think Wenger had, what, 24 or something? Uh, and, yeah. And Ferguson had a slightly less than that. Obviously, it's not the same. I'm saying like relative to everyone else in the managerial game right now, where the standard thing is like come in for like two, three years and then move on. Jurgen Klopp, like relative to the current landscape, he is a, a kind of manager that otherwise has more or less died out, someone who's stuck around for ages and ages and ages, gone through multiple cycles, the closest comparison to that would be the Wenger of his time or, or, or the Ferguson. That's not to say that he's achieved the same heights or has the same sort of legacy as those guys. I'm saying those are the closest comparisons because if it's a sliding scale, he's not at the place that all the other modern managers are. Right, okay. So this... Okay, that's, that's actually quite an interesting idea. So are you suggesting maybe directly or indirectly that probably not for fans because I think fans have a really long memory and they hold people like um, Wenger and Ferguson like in much higher esteem in general than someone who is has been there and had a massive impact but just not been there for the same amount of time. But are you saying that it's it's comparative Wenger and Ferguson and their impact to 
Klopp's impact now? Are you saying like for players, it's comparatively the same in terms of you know how long how long the managers of Ferguson and um, Ferguson and Wenger, you know that their impact for for players is the same now as as for Klopp. To, to a degree, yeah, because I think most players will have been, if, if any player has been at a club for like four or five years, like through whether it's through the youth academy or or it's coming in sort of on loan, they'll have seen like a big cycle of, of managers. A lot of players, like you look at Jurgen Klopp, he's been there for so long, that just doesn't happen as much in the modern game. And it used to happen a fair bit way, way, way back in the day. And then Wenger and Fergie were sort of the last two managers who were really doing it. And now it really, really doesn't happen. And, and Jurgen Klopp is one of the last managers around doing that sort of thing. So I think within the context of that yeah it is comparable not one for one but that's the closest thing you can compare it to hmm. yeah okay i'm i'm not yeah i'm not completely against that as an idea um i think i think it's an interesting analogy um and yeah he's obviously like he, he's obviously been a massive part of the premier league and you know it's 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 narrative for the better part of a decade so he will be massively missed yeah, 100%. And I, I think it's interesting, we talk about him being one of the longest serving managers. I mean, he kind of directly references that in his, uh, you know, message that he's stepping down, where he's like, I'm basically just knackers, <laughs> which I think, because I think when you think about, and forgive me here for massively oversimplifying the sort of ins and outs of being a manager here, but I'm just doing it to illustrate a point, like, you think about the kind of data points and the different resources and the different things to consider for a manager today versus back in the day like even as quote unquote recently because bear in mind we're talking about a sport over 100 years old even as recently as someone like Arsene Wenger Arsene Wenger turns up on Monday at London Colney and he probably speaks to like three or four of his coaches and then rolls out the training plan for the week young Klopp rolls up on uh rolls up to Melwood on um on a Monday and he's probably got a line of like 60 people People going out the door. Oh, those are just those are the set piece guys. <laughs> and they're all like, da, da, da. obviously, I'm exaggerating to make a point. But do you know what I mean? Like, you, you look at this with the size of clubs in terms of employees, and you can see that as being really evident. There's so much more to consider, so many more people, and it. You know, there are various opinions on whether this is for good or bad of the sport, but there's so many more sort of things to consider in the modern game that it's not that surprising that these days, going seven years, it's kind of like it's basically become dog years. <laughs> seven years <laughs> just exhausts you. It's funny because while I agree, I also think all of that stuff was was a lot of the time stuff that the manager had to worry about. You know, you you didn't have six sex, set, set piece specialists. You didn't have, um, you know, a coach for every single position. You didn't have nutritionists. Like the classic thing about Arsene Wenger was that he was practically cutting the grass by the end. He was literally doing everything. Um, so I, I could see how it, it's different now, obviously, but it almost has like a similar effect I, I i take that point but i also think the margins were less fine like way way back in the day with we're talking now you know really in football antiquity of the the stanley matthews and people like that like if your players weren't out boozing the night before you had a significant competitive advantage <laughs> and, and, and we've got to the point now where it's like oh like has this player like exercised for 40 minutes or 45 minutes is this player eating like this many calories or this many calories like, it gets so granular now and you have all that to consider and obviously you know there are certain inquantifiable things as well that, that are present throughout all levels of the game but I do think like back in the day you could do a lot more as a manager but you didn't necessarily have to because it wasn't a, a given that everyone else was doing that already whereas now if you neglect you know, one small aspect, you're going to get walloped because everyone else is doing that. Yeah, yeah, it's a, that's a good point and, and well made. I think both are true a little bit. Well, Jürgen Klopp on the way out. The big question, of course, uh, beyond uh, how well they will do this season. And I think it's really interesting to see if this sort of guarantees them the quadruple uh, or if they, things will now deflate, uh, is who will replace him? Who comes in and takes the fairly unenviable job of following in the footsteps of uh, a manager like this? Um, the most popular name that has been floated so far is Xabi Alonso. 
Now, mm-hmm. uh, we haven't really talked that much about Bayer Leverkusen uh, this season between you and I. I know you've sort of referenced it a couple of times, but for those uh, maybe not so familiar, Xabi Alonso's Bayer Leverkusen are currently top of the Bundesliga. They are doing exceptionally well with a number of uh, really exciting young players, a lot of new signings. Um, and so a lot of people are looking at him as maybe the next hot property uh, in upcoming management. It doesn't hurt that, of course, he did formally play for Liverpool, so the uh, the Anfield faithful are familiar with him. They're fond of him. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Xabi Alonso, in terms of a replacement, is also interesting because of who it is that he manages. A lot of people you would look at a successful manager and go, well, his star is rising and things are working with a young squad. Why would he then leave? I hope it's not sort of... Uh, you know, disrespectful or derisory to say this of the Bundesliga, but if Bayer Leverkusen do win the Bundesliga this season, they probably will not win it again because Bayern Munich being Bayern Munich will just buy all of their players. <laughs> um, so it is kind of a one and done league if you're going to do something amazing. Uh, and so to that end, it does make sense. It makes sense for the club. It makes sense in terms of the ambition and, and the profile. And it does make sense for Xabi Alonso if he does do something incredible or, or even if he doesn't, you know, he probably won't have a year like this again because Bayern Munich will be like, hmm, that's a very interesting Victor Boniface you've got there. We're going to hire him to scrub the floors. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, um, well, this is this is the probably the best title challenge most likely to, you know, actually dethrone Bayern for the better part, again, the better part of a decade. Um, I almost feel like we don't really know how it's going to go. I think a lot of the time when teams have have had runs of it, like Union Berlin a, a few years ago, it very much felt like they were just kind of not riding their luck, but it, it was similar to, I don't know, I don't want to say Arsenal, but similar to Leicester. You know, they were just at the top. They found themselves there. They were on an incredible run of form. They had to try and maintain it, et cetera, et cetera. And I am no expert in this by Leverkusen side, but my sense is very much that it's a little bit more. Well, it's 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 a it's a stronger side and one that is really building for the future in a really exciting way. And I feel like if anyone was going to mount a concerted long term um, attack on Bayern and their dominance, it would be this Leverkusen side. I 100% agree, all things being equal, but we know from the history that that all things will not remain equal because Bayern at the end of every season just go, who could pose a particular threat to us? Ah, yes, let's snuff that out while it's still uh, still just a threat. That's also certainly true. But anyway, all, all that to say, Xabi Alonso, a, a popular choice, makes a lot of sense to the fans, makes a lot of sense, in theory, to Xabi Alonso himself. Um, will the club go for him? Will they go for someone who only really has a little bit of experience at the top level. Mm. Um, I, I think it's a really obvious choice, personally. Um, he is the hottest property, in in my opinion, uh, in Europe as a manager. He's had such a dramatic impact um, at his first um, proper job. I say proper, by proper what I mean is, um, you know, first team job. Because um, I think he was manager of a second side in La Liga for a while. Um, I 100% think that you'd be crazy not to try and get him. Um, I don't know. Do do you disagree? I I think it's one of the... uh, Yeah, look, there's a lot of upside and he's really exciting, but it's kind of like signing a... Not championships, but signing a Bundesliga striker who has scored like it's like signing Sehu Garassi. Let's just say that lots of upside, but also hmm, he's doing really, really well with Bayer Leverkusen. Like they have a really good scouting system. They've brought in a lot of good players. How much of that is him, and how much of that is a team? Who really knows? Obviously, set them up well, but like how much of it is Bayern having an okay year and sort of dropping points here and there despite all the goals? And it's it's a big question mark if you're going to do something as monumental as bring him in to be the head coach of a team that wants to, you know, win the Premier League and also the Champions League. Like, it was one thing It was one thing for, say, Arsenal to bring in Mikel Arteta, which I still think was an insane decision given the context at the time, but they weren't at their peak at that time. Liverpool are currently top of the league and hoping to sort of continue the force that has seen them be 
you know, one of the best teams in Europe. So to hand the keys to the kingdom to a guy with, you know, a little bit of experience with Real Sociedad B and uh, like a season and a half with Bayer Leverkusen, at least on paper, is absurd. But then you could say that of a lot of some of the greatest managerial appointments of all time. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, I guess, yeah, I think um, what I was going to say is I feel like what Liverpool might well have in their minds is the notion of um, Frank Lampard and how that just didn't work for Chelsea. Um, you know, it was a an icon of their club who came in, had a little bit of experience at the top flight, but not a massive amount and did an okay job for a little while, but ultimately like had to be moved on. And I think a lot of people at Chelsea will view that as a failure because he could have been the guy potentially if he'd waited a few years to really be the long-standing manager that Chelsea have longed for for a long time. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Frank Lampard there as sort of a cautionary tale because I think <laughs> the the real one-to-one uh, comparison to Frank Lampard would be the guy who's been one-to-one compared to him his entire career, Steven, Steven Gerrard. Gerrard. And I, I don't think he's in the running. <laughs> when we talk about who might be next, like Xavi Alonso is like the dream signing. I think even the most ardent Liverpool fans are like, you know what, Steven? Maybe you can come and be a fan with us. <laughs> thanks, but no thanks, Stephen. Um, yeah, it, it 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 did cross my mind, but um, I think uh, you'd have to really be like blinded by your love for the man to <laughs> to 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 make that call. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, let's look next at a little bit of the action going on in AFCON and the Asian Cup. Uh, a little bit of a check-in here before we return to some managerial uh, roulette. Knockouts in full flow and some tight results in a lot of the games. A lot of the knockout games, particularly in AFCON, uh, were sort of one goal or, or maybe sort of uh, a 2-1 or a 1-0 or, or something of that nature. Really, really quite exciting stuff. Maybe the highlight or low light, depending on the side that you're on, for me, was um, Guinea's 98th minute winner to knock out Equatorial Guinea. Um, Equatorial Guinea, who obviously have been like one of the dark horses of the tournament, beating Ivory Coast 4-0. Uh, they had, uh, as we discussed last episode, Emilio Nsue, who's been the top scorer who missed a penalty in this game um, and then Guinea sort of had a real sort of not a complete smash and grab but like a very late winner and you had all the Equatorial Guinea players completely you know in tears and sobbing um, so so really really sort of crazy stuff other other ones in sort of in, in the conversation Cape Verde still marching on which which was absolutely insane Cameroon who have been underperforming managed to get through to the knockouts got sent home uh, Egypt sent home by Dr. Congo which is uh, which was quite quite a mental one um, Angola, of course, through against Namibia, and and the one that we were sort of both uh, not watching together, but Sybil watching um, last night, which was Senegal Cote d'Ivoire, which had uh, one of if perhaps not the biggest upset of this round, which saw sort of Senegal, who you know, if Equatorial Guinea the dark horses, Senegal, I think everyone had as, as favourites, and they got knocked out by a Cote d'Ivoire side that people at this point were sort of going, oh, they're lucky to even be through. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when we recorded last week, um, we talked about how Senegal, or was it the week before when we did AFCON? Either way, very recently, we talked about how Senegal had to be the favourites because they were the only top side that hadn't lost a single game. They were looking incredibly strong. And, you know, we, we also were talking about how surprising it had been that... The Ivory Coast have been so poor and we talked about, um, you know, the words of Didier Drogba and, you know, what, what he had to say in terms of like how disappointed he was with, you know, how the side have been playing in relation to them being the hosts. And, and here we are, they've knocked out, you know, just one week later, um, they've, they've knocked out the favourites. They really haven't, you know, and then... And... There's always sort of that thing of like such and such is a short is a long amount of time in football and it's like what was that even like four or five days it's a long time in football from being a team that everyone was sort of like oh they're lucky to get through and now they've they've sent sending out packing um, I did quite enjoy the sort of narrative return of after last Afcon uh, Sadio Mane taking the decisive pen and Mohamed Salah not getting round to it um, Salah uh, Mane sort of now scoring his pen but it being sort of too little too late because. Teams keep putting their best take a fifth. Put them third, teams. Put them third. These are Cameron's rules. Or first. Or first. I think um, I would I would always put them first or third. Because I feel like settling the nerves, getting the team into 
you know, the rhythm of taking penalties. You just want the first one to go in. And a lot of the time they don't. Um, I think it's... I, 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 I hear that. But but I, I've sort of had a long spiel that I won't re- re- go into again now. No, I agree I know, first. I, know, I, know. I just think third... Because that that's sort of the fulcrum of the penalty, uh, you know, matrix, if you like. That is like the most important penalty. The fulcrum of the penalty matrix. You, that's a lot of buzzwords, yeah. Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sending off applications to be uh, Liverpool's penalty specialist? Specialist. Grand penalty wizard. Um, no, but you know what I mean. Like the third penalty. Like everyone has two players in their squad aside from their best player who can score penalties. So the first two, eh. first two, how often do they not go in? It's always, it's always the third. It's always the third. I'm saying anecdotally without real any evidence to to back it up. It's always the third that things start to go wrong. I actually feel like it's often the first. I, uh, again, anecdotally, uh, instinctively, I feel like, but then weirdly, I also feel like a lot of the time when someone misses the first penalty, they end up winning the shootout. Yeah, well, maybe. I just think if you don't put, I'm always going to have this confirmation bias now. If you put your best take of fifth and not third, you deserve to lose. Yeah, it's fair. I mean, it was it was a pretty impressive penalty from Sadio Mane. And I think if he'd banged that in at any time, like first taker, second taker, third taker, that would have given, if I was in that team, it would have given me confidence. And I'm not very good at taking penalties. Um, yeah, I was also having a conversation that I want to run by you and it's not. It's it's not really about um, football punditry or anything like that, but if you're a penalty taker, it's okay. imagine that you are the captain of Senegal, okay, and you are so you're you're a professional footballer, but your quality of taking penalties hasn't changed. It's you. It's you now. But you know that if you can take a penalty when you don't normally take penalties, as like, you know, like Kaladu Koulibaly did, it's a real, in my opinion, it's a real big daddy energy, like step up move to take the penalty. You know that there's, it's like a 75% chance that you will win if you score it. Are you taking that risk? Oh yeah, uh, I'm so the wrong person to ask this question because <laughs> I'm I'm always the guy who's like, oh, if you could play up front for your team in a Champions League final, would you do it? And I'm like, there is a 99.9% chance I would cost them the game and be booed, <laughs> like I'd, I'd be reviled in the area that my team resides. Unless, <laughs> like, what if there was a corner that came swinging and it bounced off my ass? Hero. I mean, it, it, it's always likely. It's not always likely. There's always a chance. Um, yeah, I mean, if anyone hasn't watched this penalty shootout back, it actually was quite a ride. Um, some really fantastic penalties. And I loved um, Kessier's penalty at the very end. It felt like quite a rare penalty that we see these days. He just really hit it in the roof of the net and slightly to the side. And despite the fact that the keeper remained in the middle, he was just nowhere near it. I thought it was a real, a real cool penalty to end off. Um, and yeah, I, we were, we were messaging as it was happening. Couldn't believe it. Um, I was surprised that Senegal had so little in the tank in extra time. Um, it felt like for me, at least as a, as a neutral watching it to, to let it go to penalties was such a massive risk when in theory, you, you should be able to beat the team in front of you. I would have been throwing everything at um, you know, extra time, but they were bringing on subs to to take penalties. Yeah, and I think that in the in regular time, that was kind of the story of the game because they they probably should have had a penalty. I think it was as Melasar got brought down, which would have sort of made it two 0 and probably killed the game off. It was a late equalizing penalty for Cote d'Ivoire as it was, which you know sometimes that's just the nature of chaos. So I, I agree with you. You know, the, the, the ninety minutes being what it was you would then have thought, ah, oh, well, in the half an hour of extra time, they'll have enough in the tank to polish them off. And and they didn't, which was quite surprising. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And it cost them because it is always a roll of the dice when you're um, taking penalties, unless you're, you're England. <laughs> um, in which, <laughs> which case, case you just throw the dice <laughs> off a bridge. In which case it's weighted dice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, I mean, 
hey, it, the 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 teams that are, remain in it and the teams that are out now, as you just listed them now, it feels like such a wicked tournament. It's so cool in terms of like anything can happen. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's some really exciting stuff going on. Loads and loads of sort of teams that we weren't expecting to do so well. Um sort of sort of performing. I am now sort of uh slightly rooting for Dr. Congo. Um and sort of the eastern most eastern african uh team result sort of left in the in the tournament uh, and also just cuz i like saying dr congo um you, you've really taken over? that and make your own <laughs> oh i really have um but i've also also got a soft spot for cape verde over in the asian cup uh insane scenario i don't know if you actually saw this um so so stop me if you have but there was a really crazy scenario in iraq versus jordan uh in one of the the knockout games uh in which amen hussein who was the striker for iraq scored the sort of winning goal in the 76th minute to put them 2-1 up and then sort of performed this celebration that was sort of uh copying the celebration that the jordan players had been doing uh when they had scored their goal the referee took incident with him performing this celebration and sort of took it as a bit of a mockery decided to punish it with a second yellow card reducing iraq to 10 men and then Jordan scored in the 95th and 97th minute to win the tie. I mean, imagine being that dude. Im- imagine being Eamon Hussein and, like, you know, just just really... I mean, okay, so firstly, a couple of things. Um, do you think it was right for him to have been sent off? I think it was very, very harsh to give a second yellow card for a celebration that... It, 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 like I get it when there are certain celebrations, like you know that old Nicholas and Elka one that had like far right connotations, or you know some of the celebrations that you see in various Balkan derbies where there's sort of a lot of geopolitical tension involved in there. I think like worst case scenario, he was mocking the other team, so I thought it was like quite hard to send a player off at that point in a knockout tournament for it. I mean, I think you shouldn't risk it either way. So I'm saying there's, you know, I'm not saying that he's completely absolved or anything. If you invite that, you do always invite sort of a referee who's particularly card happy to to put his stamp on the game. But I thought it was very, very harsh. And, you know, credit to Jordan for, for taking the opportunity with both hands. Just because you have a man advantage doesn't mean you automatically win the game. Um, but yeah, I'd be, if I was an Iraqi fan, I'd be very, very hard done by. And I think the thing that sort of made this news even more so is that the referee in question uh, was, he was Australian, but he was born in Iran, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, but like, it's one of those classic, like, it, 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 it smells funny. an Iranian referee. Well, just like if you put an Iranian referee in charge of a match that contains Iraq, there could be nothing going on, but it just puts that added level of scrutiny. So why would you do it? Yeah, it, a bit of an oversight, I think we can agree. Um, but yeah, again, <laughs> um, a, a crazy uh, series of events happening um, at the moment and do you know what I feel like it's been I've been spending less time focusing on transfers this January I don't know if that's something that you would feel as well um, I feel like it's been a little bit quieter <laughs> I agree there's been fuck all transfers that's why it's, just been, it's been super quiet and as a result it's been really nice to to be able to enjoy these side narratives um, as a result yeah, no, no, it really has. It's been a good, it's it's an interesting, and it's a good point you raised, like one of the sort of unintentional side effects of the transfer window being quite quiet is that there has been more of the new cycle dedicated to the goings-on in, in AFCON and the Asia Cup. Um, so yeah, really interesting. I want to cycle back to the Asian Cup in just a second to talk about the result of Saudi Arabia versus the Korea Republic. Uh, but for the time being, uh, the host Qatar will be joining Jordan in the quarterfinals along with Tajikistan and Australia as well as uh, Uzbekistan. Uh, so lots of exciting stuff going on there. Before we cycle back to Saudi Arabia and Korea Republic, our next managerial uh, stepping down at the end of the season soon mm. to come in terms of Barcelona. Before even that though, Rupert, can I encourage you to... <laughs> to indulge with me in a little bit of useless trivia. Well, Cameron, you can indeed. Um, I've got a uh, got quite quite an interesting one for you, um, which I found out I thought quite funny. Um, it's around the Ballon d'Or, and um, when Messi picked up his, gosh, I actually don't know off the top of my head. What was how many Ballon d'Ors has he got now? Is it seven? Seven. Seven. Yeah. 
when Messi picked up his seventh Ballon d'Or, there was a little bit made of the fact that I think Ronaldo did some stuff on social media, like liking a couple of posts saying that Messi didn't deserve it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and people kind of called him petty. It's since come out. No, eight. He's got. He's, he's got eight. Sorry, I've, I've, I've taken a Ballon d'Or oh, off, him, just go. like Ronaldo. <laughs> um, it's since come out this week um, that. Ronaldo didn't just respond to the posts um, denigrating Messi and his, um, you know, whether or not he he deserved it, but it was actually paid sponsorship by Cristiano Ronaldo's official Facebook page. Blimey. And I, I, I wonder what that actually means. Like, is that actually Cristiano Ronaldo sat in his house in Saudi Arabia? Probably not. It's more fun to like imagine that. So I, I'm personally going to believe that for myself, but probably not in practice. <laughs> it's probably like the PR team. I mean, it's quite a wild thing to do as a PR team. But then again, I feel like so many footballers surround themselves with like their mates that I could also, 100%. I could also see it happening. But um, yeah, the, uh, um, yeah, it was all... Uh, all the paid advertising campaign by Cristiano Ronaldo himself. Blimey, blimey. Yeah, I choose to believe by by him, himself, and not like <laughs> someone in his entourage who's like just mouthing off. I, um, I think so. Well, it's interesting. You talked uh, earlier that you were sort of looking through Jurgen Klopp's history and sort of trying to find an interesting use of trivia as a send-off uh, for the German manager. I have taken the liberty of doing that uh, in your absence because... Uh, you know how there's... The, I think we've had it as a user's trivia before, and I can't remember exactly the three players, but there was something last season like between, like, Peter Shilton, Andrea Pirlo, and someone else, there's been, like, a player in every season from such and such to such and such. You, you, you know, do you remember this thing? I, you don't have to remember the player, but do you remember this being a sat? Uh, can you elaborate a little bit? There, there, there was a useless trivia we had months and months and months ago, and it was something like between three players, they had played like one of these three players had been active in every single season between like nineteen fifty something and right, you know, right, right, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. Some something to that effect. Essentially, like three long sort of players that have sort of backed about it. Um, what I've got is you know similar, not quite as long because it deals with uh, you know one specific league um, uh, and of course with managers. And that is that the 2024-25 campaign at present, assuming that uh, Jurgen Klopp doesn't go back on his word, is set to be the first English top-flight season without any of Sir Alex Ferguson, Jurgen Klopp, or hilariously the manager who fills the gap between these two, Tim Sherwood, since 1985 and 1986. Tim Sherwood. I thought you were going to say Roy Hodgson just then. Wait, did you say 1989 and... 1985. 1985-86 season. Between now and then, um, Sir Alex Ferguson, Jurgen or Tim Sherwood has always been managing. So does that mean that Tim Sherwood is the only manager that bridged the gap between Sir Alex Ferguson and Jurgen Klopp? Absolutely right. Wow. Hey, shout out, shout out Tim. Um, that's, <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> Tim Sherwood it's he's just, just so still funny. so relevant isn't he like we, you you were sort of bulking earlier as I dared sort of compare Jurgen Klopp to uh, the likes of Arsene Wenger and Alex Ferguson I bet you didn't think Tim Sherwood would be popping his head up <laughs> later in the episode and yet weirdly more palatable <laughs> 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 very good I'm a big fan of that one does anyone know what Tim Sherwood's up to now I haven't heard from him in a while Oh, God. I think he's doing... Oh, no, that's Andres Villas-Burst. I was going to say he's doing something weird like racing cars, but uh, no, that's uh, that's Villas-Burst. Tim Sherwood is just knocking about. Doesn't look like he's doing anything at the moment. He's just, he's just um, rolling around. Oh, he's a, he's a football pundit about. There you go. Oh, there you go. Another man who is soon to be knocking about, how about that for a segue, is none other than Xavi Hernandez, who has also announced that he'll be stepping down at the end of the season. It looks like he's sort of, uh, he's stealing Jurgen Klopp's flow. It actually made me think, I, I wonder if, um, 
I don't know how much you use YouTube or stuff, but there have been a lot of big sort of YouTube creators who've announced that they're retiring in like a really small month, two month period that people have been talking about. It's sort of like a bit of a wave. And I saw this and I was like, man, are we just going to start seeing various? Yeah, it's not particularly what I watch, but I just saw people commenting about it as like an entertainment trend um, just because of burnout, incidentally. And I was like, I wonder if this sort of trend has now spread to football management as well. We've had Jurgen Klopp, Nets are going to have Xavi, Nets is going to be, you know, Carlo Ancelotti's going to get burnt out as well and eventually everyone's going to step down. <laughs> I like the idea that like all all top flight managers are like seeing Jurgen Klopp be like, to be honest, guys, I'm just quite tired and being like, can he do that? <laughs> can we do that? <laughs> he can quit. <laughs> is that, is that, Roy Hodgson's like, please, <laughs> can I? Um, I mean, I mean you, you joke, but like it is such an ephemeral job and I don't think Xavi's is exactly the same because I think this is a jumped before he was pushed situation. But like, it is such an ephemeral job that for a lot of managers, it's probably mental the idea of ever voluntarily walking away because at any given moment for the vast majority of managers, the flames are at your door and you're desperately trying to you know get the results to keep you in the job. And so the fact that Jurgen Klopp has had the luxury of being like, actually, I, I want to leave because I know they won't fire me otherwise. It's quite quite a hard flex. Oh, uh, it's, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive flex. And again, almost unheard of in um in the modern game um yeah um how what do you think you the likelihood would have been if i'd asked you six months ago whether or not roy hodgson was going to outlive or outlast jürgen klopp in the premier league you honestly this that is the kind of bet that time travelers would make you could seriously like you could get people (laughs) to bet houses on that kind of thing i think you could too um, I, I think you could too. Um, there you go. Um, yeah, Xavi, it's it's an interesting one. Um, you know, Barcelona are they, they've had a they've had a good time under Xavi. I think he stabilised the ship. It's not been entirely always plain sailing, but then I think that would have been entirely impossible given the state of the club that he inherited. Um, seems like. Yeah, I, I, I again am surprised. Um, I, I think that it does just feel quite rare to to see, and it, maybe it feels a bit more likely or more common in La Liga because we had um, Zinedine Zidane, obviously famously um, doing it at Real Madrid. But yeah, the the trend of managers stepping down is um, like it seems like it's picking up. The Javi thing is weird. I mean, it's just, it's another one of those that you sort of, you know, oh God, what are they doing over there? Like mentality, mental things of like the Spanish league. Like he won the league six months ago or so. And he's also a club legend. And he's now sort of basically on the basis that he's 11 points off the top and still in the Champions League. They're like, nah, this isn't good enough, mate. You've got to go. I mean, I think it speaks to sort of the chaos at Barcelona as well. But like it is mental. Barcelona did get knocked out of the Copa del Rey last week. And they almost certainly won't make up the difference between either Real Madrid or, or possibly even Hirona. Um, but they are still in the Champions League round of 16. Like they, He could theoretically win a Champions League and step down in the same season. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, it's it's funny, though. I feel like um, I have at times felt like Chelsea and Barcelona are almost like had their fates intertwined for several years in terms of um you know their their ability to access economic levers and the chaos the abject chaos um with which the clubs are run but this is where you know the the uh the comparisons end because no chelsea manager would ever um step down they would always be they would always be unceremonially fired yeah, you wouldn't get the chance to step down. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> by, the, by the time you've had the, the ability to sort of form that thought, you've already had your head chopped off. <laughs> your head chopped off. <laughs> yeah, by, by, the time, uh, think... by the time your um, your media announcement that you're stepping down has been approved, you go back to your desk and it's, your office is locked. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. 
I think uh, if we're looking at sort of who's going to be renouncing, uh, sorry, announcing, replacing uh, Xavi, it's another interesting question. The sort of initial rumour that came out was that um, Mikel Arteta was also announcing that he was stepping down at the end of the season uh, and was going to be uh, taking the Barca job, which the club and Arteta himself immediately came out and denounced as just complete nonsense uh, because Spanish journalists just write to write. Um, but my sort of question to you... The Barca job, a lot of people obviously are sort of putting two and two together and sort of, I would suggest, not not lazily, but just sort of fantastically linking Jurgen Klopp to it, even though he's like, I want a break, I've had an exhausting job, and they're like, go to Barca. Um, is that job a bit of a poison chalice at the moment? Yes. <laughs> All right, well, ask the Hobson. <laughs> I, I, do think, I mean, do I, we I, need I think... to be nuanced about this? I, I, I think absolutely. Um, I, I think if... If Jurgen Klopp says he's too tired to manage at Liverpool, I can't imagine a more tiring job than Barcelona manager. All right. Well, let, let me take up devil's advocate here then. Let's say, other than, you know, Jurgen Klopp has just rebuilt Liverpool from the ground up in, you know, from a team that was well outside of the contention for the Premier League and obviously never won it to a team that has won it and also, you know, come really close quite a few times. Um and sort of brought through a lot of sort of legendary players and, and young players and all this stuff. At Barcelona, let's say he goes there for two years. He doesn't decide to do the whole rebuild. And he just goes, Joan Laporta, flick as many levers as you can to just get me Mbappe. And I want to just have like, um, like where before was really considered and conservative and having to manage my resources to, to build a great squad. Pull every lever and that's the only condition I'll sign the contract. Get me Mbappe or, who, or whoever else and bring them over. <laughs> and yes, then, then I'll do it for two years. <laughs> what, is, what is this scenario? <laughs> yeah, I, like, well, I don't understand what you're saying to me here i'm like oh, i don't think i don't think it would be a good job for him if he's tired and you're like yeah but what if he does something that he'd never do what do you mean he'd never do it's like, such this, a meme this, scenario Laporta, clearly like, is, is do whatever you have to do oh, Barcelona. Mate, sign and back mate 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 it, mate, like it's such a meme scenario. Barcelona is is run like a meme. I, like th- that is <laughs> the one big club that I think this is a realistic proposal for. Like already they're pulling levers out of their ass. They can sign players like Rafinha for seventy million. <laughs> if you don't think <laughs> Man City club... would try and sign Mbappe for two hundred million, I don't know what to say to you. Uh, maybe they would, but like. They wouldn't necessarily be. I mean, there's a whole other conversation there, but they wouldn't be pulling sort of various levers and selling. Or like Juan Laporta would be like, okay, we'll now be Barcelona. We're selling the B to Real Madrid, <laughs> and in order to we've done that to finance the Mbappe deal. Oh, oh, what I would give to live in a world of Barcelona and Real Madrid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, okay, sure, if. If you wanna, if you wanna ask me whether or not I think Jurgen Klopp would join Barcelona, if but if they agreed to do literally whatever it took to sign Kylian Mbappe, then maybe, right? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> is how you want to hear? That's that's, that's that's just yeah, yeah. It is. That's just my devil's advocate. That I think they could they could really go mental. That's and not sort of a devil's have advocate. Sort of that's like that's like a devil's umbrella hat. It's it's a devil. It's a silly thing that the devil has. <laughs> it is funny that like um, I was sort of reading this thread from a from a Barcelona fan slash analyst earlier, and he was sort of talking about how the difference is is so obvious, like in terms of how the clubs run. Like, said, like Liverpool will be creating. No, it was just a guy, just just a guy who um, it's sort of tweets about Barcelona. He's kind of like Liverpool will be creating committees, studying CVs, interviewing the neighbours of each manager's aunt when he was six years old, and leaving no stone unturned to find their new manager. Barca, Laporta, and his two boys meeting at a restaurant, the Sopranos style. It's, I mean, there's a lot in that sentence. There's a lot to take in. But just they'll just be vibing. There'll be, there'll be no like data points to decide the next Barcelona manager. Laporta will just be like, yeah, this guy seems good, Lamal. <laughs> Yeah, this guy, this this is my guy right here. Yeah, pro- probably to be fair, um, I wouldn't be surprised. Who of the other managers that might be available? Are there any that jump out to you for Barcelona or even for Liverpool? If you would like to to go back, if I didn't give you the opportunity before. 
I would say for Barcelona, the obvious one is the rumour that we mentioned at the start of Mikel Arteta, obviously like having a history at Barcelona, being Spanish himself, um, and, and being sort of an up-and-coming manager, he'd make a lot of sense. He seems to have, if not rejected it outright, sort of rejected the rumours for now. But hey, I think that could be one that makes a lot of sense. And maybe someone who, due to his sort of lesser experience as compared to a sort of a Jurgen Klopp um, and sort of lesser sort of achievements compared to like Jurgen Klopp, might take on that job in the same way that he's on the Arsenal job and be like, okay, this is a great step up for me. Now, we've talked about whether or not Jurgen Klopp would go to Barcelona. The obvious natural alternative is whether or not Xavi would go to Liverpool. Your thoughts? <laughs> I think he'd, he'd leap at that opportunity. I don't think Liverpool would. You don't think they would? No, I do not. Um, let's move quickly on uh, as we are coming to time. We've got a few little uh, bits and pieces to to discuss. Uh, to the FA Cup, where we had a few games, perhaps most notably Maidstone United's FA Cup dream, continuing thanks to a battling heroic against the run of play 2-1 victory. Uh, 38 shots from Ipswich to Maidstone United's 2, winning 2-1, the ultimate cup set. Oh, absolutely. And and those stats there really just uh they, they tell they tell the story that I wanna hear. I, I wanna I wanna see teams hold out, grind the victory, and beat bigger teams. It's uh it's it's the joy of the cup. Um it's it's you know, anything can happen over ninety minutes and it's very exciting that they are still in it. And I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot here, Cameron. Um shall we go? Shall we go to the next game? You owe me. A football um, match <laughs> to Mason United away at either Coventry or Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, well, let me let me see what I can do. <laughs> What's this space? We go to Sheffield for the weekend. I I would love to go to Sheffield for the weekend. To be honest with you, so maybe maybe. I mean, it's some some really interesting stuff. They are the lowest ranked team to make it to the fifth round since Blythe Spartans in 1978. To give you a bit of a sense of how how historic and how impressive th- this achievement is, as we sort of alluded to there, their next uh, round will be either against Coventry, uh, who are sixth in the championship at time of recording, or Sheffield Wednesday, who are 23rd in the championship at time of recording and and in real crisis. Um, as compared to sort of second-placed Ipswich, the fans were obviously massively devastated and the team that they narrowly missed out on drawing Man City away uh, in the draw, as although they almost certainly would have not won that fixture, it would have been a really big day out for them. And obviously we've talked about the, uh, sure. the yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Gateway season and things of that nature. But maybe this is a blessing in disguise because, hey, look, if you can beat Ipswich, maybe you can beat Coventry and maybe you can beat Sheffield Wednesday and get through to the sixth round. <laughs> Yeah, oh absolutely. Um I mean it's 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 just how ambitious do you want to be, isn't it? Um I like the fact that it seems as if Maidstone United's dream is not yet over and I think we can comfortably agree that it probably would have been had had Man City been drawn. So hey, I, I'm I'm all for it. Um I, I think that it could be one of the most exciting things that happens this year in football. Absolutely. Well, uh, just a little bit left before we finish for this week. Um, Circling back to the Asian Cup, just because that is one that I wanted the dust to settle on a little bit, as it was quite a mental finish. Um, Saudi Arabia uh, continued their uh, sort of giant killing streak, almost, I should say, by going ahead early uh, against uh, South Korea in the round of 16, before South Korea, in 10 minutes of out of time, scored in the 99th minute to take things to extra time and subsequently penalties. Uh, and Korea have knocked Saudi Arabia out as a result of winning the penalty shootout 4-2. Saudi Arabia, though... A lot of us look at that and go, this sort of project, and go, mm, are you really into football or is this just sports washing? They are stacking up a couple of all right results. Uh, or is this just another nature of the cup type of thing? And after all, Cameron, they've lost, so stop simping. <laughs> I mean, like, I think I think what we're all thinking, obviously, is that, you know, they even managed to, to beat the world champions, Argentina, in the opening game of um, Qatar 2022. So. Mm. Yeah, I, I think. Um, Although their their opening game, anyway. Yeah, the, their opening game. Um, what 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 I'm what I'm asking is, has you know, have Ronaldo et al. basically encouraged, taught all these Saudi players how to take a team like Korea to the wire, or is it just a game of football that they've done quite well in? 
Is it really boring if I say both? No. I'll, I'll accept that answer. Um, I, I, I think interesting to see where this yeah, goes. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think they'll obviously be improving by nature of having good players around them. That's just how it works. Um, you know, they'll be learning. You, know, you always hear that those stories of like, it's quite it's quite annoying sometimes, but literally anywhere that Cristiano Ronaldo goes, you hear stories about him, for example, like elevating the entire, not just attitude of all of the players, but like, the training programs and the nutrition programs because he's so so successful and he's so motivated as an individual that everyone around him just like steps up and while not everyone is Cristiano Ronaldo levels of intensity and drive and training regimes I feel like just to have those players around them beyond just playing the football I think yeah, and even beyond just the training, um, will be having a, b- a big impact. Uh, yes, this is completely the opposite of what the kind of sort of stance we normally take on these things. But I'm enjoying Bizarro Cameron and Bizarro Rupert being like Cristiano Ronaldo has made every Saudi Arabian player really good because <laughs> it's a fun narrative. <laughs> um, last here we thing are here, uh, just just something I wanted to flag as it was news from last week. I don't think we got around to it last week, but just something I kind of wanted to flag. Um, Manchester United. Now, uh, the first thing to discuss about them is their FA Cup game. Uh, in what is becoming a hallmark of the Ten Hag era, a shocking performance is capped off with a win. And so means a stay of execution for the bald headed man, uh, at least for this week. We can get into that in just a little second. And one of the absences, the one I wanted to talk about is Omar Barada. Now, for those who are not familiar with that name, Omar Barada has just come in as the new chief executive officer of Manchester United. And he's not just, you know, an important name for that reason. He's an important name because of where he came from, where he was the chief business officer, chief football officer of City Football Group, chief football business officer of City Football Group, and sort of widely seen as a sort of successor to uh, Ferran Soriano and Chiqui Bergerstein, the sort of top guys within the city structure. Now, he's sort of making the right kind of noises. That's why I wait to sort of talk about this, because he's now sort of had a few things to say and talked about, you know, if a player hasn't started doing well after two years, we'll get rid of them. Or, you know, we won't accept failure, blah, 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 blah. Will he be the key to finally turning things around at Manchester United? Or is that too hard for one man to do? He's certainly an interesting thing and, and represents... You know, I don't know how much people are interested in certainly the world of sports business, but off the pitch, this is the equivalent of signing like a Figo um, and really just taking someone across town. Really, really shocked the sports business world and a really interesting thing that may end up being the seed that we all come back to if Manchester United do have a revival. Or it could be too much of a job for one man to do with all the infrastructural issues. Let's have a look. You know, it's just, just interesting to flag. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's a fascinating move. And I feel like Based on what little I understand of it and, and, you know, the interviews I've seen with him, there was one thing which stood out to me, which was he said, um, a common theme of my career has been to take risks. And for me, at least, I think he's seen an opportunity to, like, you know, like be a legend, have a hero moment. Like your Louis Figo's, like the profile of the move. It, it Again, Manchester United... While it is such a poison chalice, I know we use that term too much, but for so many people, and it goes beyond just players, the idea that you can be the one to turn around the biggest club in the world or second biggest to Real Madrid potentially um, is still so potent. And I think he has decided to take a risk. Yeah, no, I think that's probably right. And some people have been suggesting maybe he's jumping off ship before he's seen something coming for City. I don't really put a lot of stock in that suggestion. I think it's it's more likely what you've said. Like he sees the chance to have his name in the history books as like the guy who rec- like rescued United from despair. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think back to the game, sometimes just... these decisions are made for for like a, a lot of different reasons, and it could well be that you know with the inside track, he knows that City are going to get really decimated and pulled apart by financial fair play. Yeah, it could be true. He will have a lot of work to do because, as mentioned, United uh, went uh, <laughs> pound for pound United. for a long time. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, in, in this game, the game against Newport, obviously they ended up winning 4-2, but for long periods of this game, Newport, who are, Newport County, who are 16th place in League 2, were going pound for pound with Premier League United. Not a great sign and not a great indication of the direction of football 
under Eric Ten Hag. Obviously, again, as I said, it's a win, so he'll keep his job, which for someone who doesn't have a lot of time for United is is broadly a good thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's not great. No, He's no, also yeah. got to deal with yet another player. It's a, it's a good point, I think, because I think um, this game was the first time we've ever really thought that Manchester United are in, are in crisis. <laughs> that's <laughs> not even about us it's about the people who are keeping him on or not and uh, you know maybe that's changing now but it seems like the yeah, Glazers but... were just looking whether it was a W or an L and we're going yeah we won 2-1 against a team that was formed 10 minutes ago you know not not, not saying that over Newport County this is a fictional other team um, you know but fine it's a win it's a win we don't know the context yeah fair, fair enough fair enough Newport County that's so so rude of you they've got a rich history I, I believe <laughs> I was founded I was, in 1912. I was not talking about Newport County, who, who I actually am a am a big fan of now. Um, not least because the highlight of this game for me was, I believe, it was two Newport County fans who were holding up one of those signs. Um, it was two sort of young men, and you know the signs that are like, "Oh, so and so, can I have your shirt? You know, please sign. You're my favorite player." Which, in my opinion, is the scourge of modern football. I think those kids should be taken out of the stadium and executed publicly. Um, oh, but but <laughs> I think these these fans had a sign that said Rashford, can we have a week of your wages? Because obviously he's just been fined for going out clubbing the day before the Newport Games training session. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it. You're still reeling for me calling for public execution. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I was I was also looking up um who um who Newport County's owner was. It's Hugh Jenkins, who was the um the chairman of um so the, the chairman of Newport. Um Hugh Jenkins was the chairman of Swansea City when they made it into the Prem a few years ago. Hmm. There you go. Very interesting little little tidbit there. Well, I wish Newport uh, County well. Hopefully, they manage to stay up in League Two, and this has given them the uh, the encouragement to do so. Um, it's also given all all parents out there with children making banners to go to games <laughs> a month head start. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, but probably a good place to end it for this week, Rupert. Good to talk to you as yeah, always. It's definitely descending. So. This- <laughs> That sounds about good. Um, as soon as as soon as Cam starts calling for public executions, we have to, for legal reasons, end the podcast. Yeah, we've 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 come unstuck too many times before. Um, great to talk to you as always, and thank you to everyone at home for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron MacDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amschel.